This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. I hope you're well, looking after yourselves in these lockdown times. I'm putting this episode out in between the current international break. Whenever I say that now, I'm always reminded of a previous episode where I spoke with the BBC's commentator John Murray, who said, they're not breaks, not for the players, not for the staff, not for the people who have to work during them. Uh, so we'll go with International Window. And speaking of commentators, I hope you'll enjoy this episode as I'm speaking with another. Seamless. Uh, John Driscoll has joined me. Uh, we'll speak a little bit more about that in a moment. Now, during lockdown the first time around, I started to read a little more. I have to be honest and say I'm not the fastest of readers. But I started to find various books written by England supporters about their travels following England. And you may remember I spoke with Glyn Davies about his book called About the Game, The Lot. Uh, I've also read To Lose or Not to Lose by Jamie Mash, Playing for England by John Hemmingham, and I'm currently in the middle of Tear Gas and Ticket Touts by Eddie Brimson. Perhaps one episode I'll cover these books in more detail. Book club, maybe. <laughs> uh, but as I said... This episode, we are speaking with Sky Sports commentator John Driscoll, as he also has a book coming out. But before that, some sad news. Sadly, a couple of former England internationals have passed away recently. On the 10th of November, born in 1937, Tony Waiters was 83. And he played in goal for England five times in 1964 under Alf Ramsey. They played predominantly for Blackpool as his club side, but he also represented Macclesfield Town and Burnley. But with regards to England, he made his debut away to the Republic of Ireland in a 3-1 win. Unfortunately, his second game was a 5-1 defeat to Brazil in the Maracanã. He then played twice at Wembley, drawing with Belgium and beating Wales, before his last appearance away to the Netherlands in a one-all draw. And according to the excellent England Football Online website, Alf Ramsey named his provisional list of 40 players for the 1966 World Cup. He then named a provisional squad of 28 to attend Lillishaw. Tony Waiters was one of the 12 cut, but he was asked to remain on standby. And he later spent time in Canada and in fact became the Canadian manager at the 1986 World Cup Finals in Mexico, which was Canada's only appearance at a World Cup Finals. Then on the 12th of November, Albert Quixel passed away. He was 87 years old, born in 1933, and like Tony Waiters, he also played five times but under Walter Winterbottom, England's first manager. Quixel was a striker. Whilst he didn't score for England, he did score plenty for his club sides, Sheffield Wednesday, Manchester United and Oldham Athletic. 
His England career consisted of a debut against Wales in a 4-1 away win, a friendly 4-4 draw in an England versus the rest of the world game, a home win over Ireland, all in 1953, and then in 1955 he played on tour, drawing against Spain, then losing to Portugal. It may come as a surprise that he wasn't the only player to play for England with the surname beginning with Q. Alf Quantrill played four times back in 1920-21 season. I'd like to pass on our condolences to both Tony Waiters and Albert Quixel's family and friends. My guest this episode is current Sky Sports commentator, and we've also heard him on the likes of Five Live, Match of the Day, Talk Sport 2, and he's also current host of the La Liga Weekly podcast. And now, an author too. Please welcome John Driscoll. It's good to be here, Russell. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So you are a, a football commentator in these, uh, in these current times at Sky Sports. Yeah, well, I'm freelance, so you know, available for hire, available to you know, whatever in, the, in these this day and age, you know, whatever you got, I'll wash your car for the for the right money. Um, <laughs> no, so yeah, so I work for Sky. I, I worked, I did a lot of years doing the the Spanish football for them, and now I do some Championship games. So people around the world might hear me a, 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 on an international feed as well for Sky, and then I do a, a highlights roundup as well. Which, if you subscribe to Sky's uh, iPad uh, service, I'm on that as well. So yeah, so I do. I basically watch every Premier League game uh, for Sky and do highlights. I do some commentary on the championship. And then, obviously, I then, because I've got my La Liga podcast, so then I spend the Saturday, Sunday evening trying to catch up with the Spanish. I watch all the Spanish games and then watch them as many as I can on the Monday morning. So sort of by, by the early part of the week, I've sort of watched 20 games uh, wow. a weekend, trying to, trying to get my head around two leagues, uh, which, is, which is great. Uh, good way to make a living. Occasionally, someone asks me a question and I'm thinking... I don't know. I don't know. I watched too much football this weekend, you know. So, but yeah. So yeah, I'm still on Sky. Uh, still, uh, I'm on Quest sometimes as well. On the you know the the uh, football league yes uh, highlights program as well, and and various bits and bobs. You might hear me as as I say, available for hire. How long have you been commentating or reporting as a uh, in your profession? Um, yeah, so I I started out as a uh, as a news journalist. So I, I I did a I did a degree in politics, my journalism conversion course. And then uh, I was a news journalist for quite a few years. So I was about 20 or 27 or something like that. So I did, a, you know, I did a, a good block of time as a, and then basically I, I, I lacked confidence early on that I could become a sports reporter. I thought it was too, it was too much of a dream job. And I thought it'd be far more sensible to become a news reporter. So only after I'd been a, a news reporter for quite a while, looking at people doing sport, thinking, I, know, I could do that. I know as much about football as he does. I, I was paying to go to football on a weekend and, and then working news all week. So I gradually changed over and I was working at a, a radio station in the Northeast and I and then they got the rights for Middlesbrough games and I'm, I'm a Middlesbrough supporter. So I then started just going along and, and doing the interviews on the pitch side. It was in Brian Robson's uh, managerial days. So I, I then became the, the, the pitch side reporter uh, and then I went to Metro and then I worked there as, as a sort of, I was the the sidekick on the breakfast show doing sport and going to games, not as a commentator, but again, as the pit side reporter and before the after game and all of that stuff. Uh, and that was in Keegan's day. Uh, so Keegan, Keegan was a dream then. He, he was brilliant to deal with. He was emotional. So he would, if they'd lost, he could be very spiky, <laughs> but he would sit down, you know, 
consider the access you have, the difficulty you have getting access to managers now. Keegan would sit down and do five-minute interviews with local radios in those days. It was, it was, it was brilliant to deal with. Um, so I was there. I was at, working in Metro when, when the choke happened, the great choke of, of uh, 95, 96. So they, they were great days. And then, uh, I, uh, then I, I left there to go and work for the first websites. So the very early days of, of football clubs having websites. So I did Newcastle and Middlesbrough. I edited those two websites. I'm not, I'm not very techie, but um, it, it was just it was straightforward enough. And then from there, I went to talk radio. Um, oh. And when I didn't realise, it was a secret plan um, from Kelvin McKenzie to launch Talk Sport. And so what they'd done was they'd hired quite a few, suddenly three or four sports specialists appeared on sports radio, on, on talk radio, sorry. And then overnight they fired, literally Christmas time, um, they fired all the uh, the non-sports staff, launched Talk Sport the next week. And, yeah, so they, they, were, they, were, they were fascinating days, crazy days. Because we were just we were just blagging it, and the whole thing was a massive blag, you know, um, just uh, to the, literally where we're, we're doing stuff. I mean, so much now is ironically now so much stuff is done off the telly. It was, it was considered an outrage then that we were commentating games and reporting games uh, off the telly. But I, I remember reporting a game on on Talk Sport, the new Talk Sport, before the massive four clubs really had many many clubs had websites. Uh, and there was still the old phone line. You used to used to ring the the premium number and get um, yes and get uh, a, a report every ten minutes. So I was I was commentator the, the reporter pretending to be at a game for Talksport, but I was ringing Club Call and and writing down what they were saying <laughs> and then going on Talksport pretending that I was uh, staying for for real myself. You know, so yeah, so it was an interesting start to my to my sports career. Then I, I did that for a few years and then uh, and then I went freelance and started working for slightly more. I mean, Talksport's a great company now. It's probably you know it's a proper company now with proper rights and you know, yeah. actually in a, in a you know you know does everything properly. But it wasn't in those days. So it was then um, I then started working for the BBC and Sky at the same time. Wow. So I mean, you've, um, you've you mentioned about watching games on TV. I'm guessing then that the the whole current situation we're in at the moment, coronavirus, um, hasn't affected you work wise as maybe we we think it may. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a funny business. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a strange time for everybody, isn't it? But mm, of course. the the business of televising football, thankfully for me, and I think for fans as well, has been largely protected. So I I've switched to doing it from home. Basically, the, the highlights. Yeah. Um, so I can do that. And when it, for the commentaries, you're still going in. So the, the stuff I've done, whatever I've done, so, so some red button commentaries. Done the, the the quest highlights and internationals, and that's all been from studios. So, so the Premier League they're actually going to the Premier League, and you know they've got some privileged access to there. Yep. But quite a lot of football commentary now isn't in the stadium anyway, just for for cost saving purposes. So it, in that respect, it hasn't massively uh, affected it. I mean, the obviously lockdown meant there was literally no football, yep. and as a freelancer, that was that was worrying times. Luckily. I'd already agreed, uh, Bob Pitch had already accepted my idea for this book. And so I was able to, I did a, a lot of reader, because I've done it's effectively 50 biographies uh, in this book. So that was, it was a lot of books to read, a lot of general history books, and then as many of the biographies and autobiographies as I could. We'll touch on the book at the moment, um, but you mentioned yeah. there Brian Robson, Kevin Keegan, two, two major England players of the past, um, and you've done you've done plenty of work with the uh, the England team as well, or, or and around the England team. 
Yeah, so that was in my in the talk sport days. So the early days of talk sport, I followed England around. So that was uh, Kevin Keegan will have been there by then. And so we we it's for Euro 2000, but we did the tournament anyway. So the commentary came from Amsterdam from a hotel room. This it was it was quite it was in the news at the time. We were in the newspapers for doing this. So Alan Parry and Jim Proudfoot were commentating, and I travelled around. So I travelled to all the games, not just England games, uh, but wherever I, I could. I had an en- engineer and I were and we were driving separately. So it was, it was quite hair raising getting around the whole of Holland and Belgium with this little sat- satellite phone. It's only size of a small briefcase or something so right. you put that on your car if people come and uh, came and stood in the way it stopped working so you're trying to shoo people away <laughs> who were from all around europe and so yeah that, that sort of limited english and we would basically try and pitch up as close to the stadium park as close to the stadium with police and everything in the way uh and then try and do scene setters and, and post-match reaction with fans and all of that which was it was exciting, but it was, it was, it was a nightmare as well. But the, for Euro two thousand, I was in. The, you know that when there was real trouble in Charleroi, yes. um, I was I was there that day. All the TV had, had come and hired uh, balcony apartments and stuff around the main town square, so they were all nice and safe. I was I had this satellite phone on a on a wheelie bin or something, um, and all the. The worst of the England fans uh, were in full flow that, flow that day. And there was quite a lot of drink being uh, sunk very early. And then uh, I, weirdly, this is typical of talk sport in the day, I got a call because they had Peter Shilton in a castle hotel in Namur, which was, I can't remember how far it was away from, from Shawa. Um, so we had, and he couldn't get his, um, his kit working. So we had to go and get Peter Shilton connected up. And then... We had a cup of tea with Peter Shilton, and then we got back, and I got back, and the atmosphere was strange, and the ground was wet, and there was the smell of wet dirt in the air. And it turned out the police had been, and it, it kicked off. So I, I have no idea whose, whose fault it was, how it happened. So it kicked off, and then they, they turned the hoses on the England fans and all of that. So I, I missed the, the big story of the day that was then all over the news. But then I was there for the rest of the day interviewing England fans, and obviously obviously the vast majority of England fans are there having a, having a lovely time, having a yeah. few drinks. But there is a very noisy, small, noisy contingent who are very easily found if you want to go finding them, um, who, who are not there to, to, to do the same. And obviously, most you know, unfortunately, it's the way the media works, isn't it? You know, no one's interested in a couple of blokes having a quiet beer and then meeting up with their friends and going to the game. That's not that's not as interesting a story as uh, you know a gang of people chucking tables and stuff around. But anyway, as the day went on, obviously all the fans went up to the ground. We we weren't allowed in. So I'm left there with all the England fans who didn't have tickets who have been drinking all day. And they keep coming to me to do these live interviews. And I think, really, really, really rather wouldn't. Uh, but then it became more respectable. Because I, I was actually, I was there the day that Keegan quit. So I was at the, the last game at the old Wembley where yes. Deep Marhaman scored that long-range goal. Yeah, And then... Wasn't um, a nice day, was it? <laughs> no, grim, grim. Absolutely, the whole thing. Was, the weather was grim. It was wet. wet cold yeah. and it was grey mm. and England were terrible we? they, you yeah. know, we'd lost totally lost our way which was a shame because like I said I had so much time for Kevin Keegan but you know it, it was typical of him to quit immediately after a game wasn't it so emotional um, and to you know not let it go in not have a think about it and, you yeah. know, where are we going with it you know none of that with Kevin um, so he quit and then I, I had to try and get it live in so I stood at the front of the press conference he did Sky quit on Sky basically didn't he yeah. and then he came into the press conference and I had to sort of muscle Way and stand at the front of the press conference, and, and he said to me, "You can't just stand up, John." You so I had to kneel down, interviewing Kevin Keegan, <laughs> while there's about three hundred journalists all trying to also to fire questions at me. And then I was there through the Sven era, 
Um, yep. So I was in Munich. I was on the running track actually in Munich for the five one. Oh, so that wow. was that's, that's yeah, that was that was. I mean, that was amazing, absolutely amazing. Because it it was one of the where you just had to. Have we really scored? Have we really scored again? Have we scored again? Because early on it didn't look like that, did it? it looked like no. we were in trouble. Yeah. But then you know, I, I can't remember the details. You haven't got the best view, to be fair. But I mean, you've got a brilliantly exciting view, but you haven't got a really tactical uh, advantage uh, vantage point of you when you're no. touchline. But you do see the speed of it, and you see the speed of Michael Owen running away, and you know, as they say, even even Heskey scored. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. So they, they were they were great days. Followed you know, followed England around for a good a couple of years. Albania, that, that, yeah, was there for for that one. Went to Greece. Went to quite a lot. Yeah, you know, went here, there, and everywhere. Uh, and then I didn't go to the World Cup 2002. I did that from the telly. Right. Um, and then that was the end. Of, that was the the end of me at uh, Talksport. And then, unfortunately, once you're once you're a freelance, unless you're a top freelance, you you're, you're scrabbling around for for work. So I I, I recently did Denmark Faroe Islands for Sky. Okay. You know, so you know, it's Martin Tyler does uh, does the England games, um, and and the rest of us do what we can so uh, yeah so i don't now cover england for for anybody uh i, I go with the kids um okay. you know I, i've got a football mad son my my daughter less so but she'll come to an england game um so yeah we went down the last one we went to went down to southampton oh, to yes. the uh, yeah to the to the kosovo game which is amazing brilliant because mm. uh, yeah, I, I i i miss the days uh i know wembley's brilliant and i know it's a national stadium and all of that but i i miss when england traveled around I used to like that. I used to go into Derby, going to Middlesbrough, Manchester. You know, the Greece game in Manchester where Beckham yeah. uh, scored the last-minute free kick and all of that. I, I, I thought that was brilliant for England. I, I didn't think we needed a national stadium, uh, especially not one that crippled the finances of English football for all those years. Uh, but there, yeah, but here we are. We've got it. You know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm, not, I'm not in favour of knocking it down. No, it's there. You know, but but yeah. But it was, so it was, it was brilliant being in Southampton. Uh, you know, and we're, we're sitting there close to the players, and again, you see. The speed of the players. I think. I think was it? I think Sancho and Sterling played that day, didn't they? And yeah. you see those guys at Fort Bell. You know, wow, you know they, these guys are top. And you can hear Jordan Henderson shouting and swearing and cajoling and all of that. It was, yeah, it was, it was it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so if I can, I take the kids if I'm, if I'm not working. Well, we must say hello at the next England game when we're uh, when we're allowed in. Yes. Oh, yes. One day soon, hopefully. Hopefully. So you mentioned about you yeah, had this period of time obviously we all had a, a period of time lockdown where you were where you were reading all these books and and sort of racking up the the history on on various players about the game and it's it's culminated in in this book of yours called the 50 football's most influential players yeah so the idea is it's, it's sort of it's twin track partly they are i'm i'm, I'm claiming that they are individually in, influential in reality, what I'm trying to do as well is tell the story of football all the way through. So from Victorian times, really, when the, the game as we know it was written down and codified in England by former public school boys in London, uh, all the way through. Raheem Sterling is the 50th uh, person in the book. And so I'm trying to knock the story on all the way through. So we start with Charles Alcock, who is is a player in those days. The days in, Back in those days, football didn't look like football. It looked, I mean, the clue is... If you look at Australian rules football, um, those rules were written before the FA's rules that we now know as football. Or I'm, I'm comfortable with people saying soccer because it explains the difference. Mm. And and so it, there, was, there was a big split. Obviously, they lost the rugby people. Uh, and it, was, it looked like the most brutal game when you read the rules of it. They were allowed to kick each other in the shins. And that part, one of the splits was over that. There were people who say, well, no, you're not very, you're not manly enough unless you're allowed to actually rake each other down the shed. Really? Yeah. Um, so, so, 
So it goes from those days, from Charles Alcock, who set up then. So he got the FA Cup going. He helped codify the rules. And then he set up the first internationals. So they played these series of internationals against Scotland. So they're not initially recognised the first because they were basically Charles Alcock's mates who sounded a bit Scottish. That's right. The first one was the first one. So, but then, you know, uh, when, when understandably, the Scots said, can we pick our own team, please? Um, so fair enough. Uh, so they then took a team up uh, and they, they played against largely the Queen's Park team. Because uh, obviously football had sprung up all around the country. There were people playing football. It wasn't purely the preserve of the of the of the the public schools, so the Scots could play football as well. And it turns out they were quite good at it. And so Alcock took his team up. He only ever played one international because by then he was injury pro. I'm not surprised the brutality of the game. I'm not surprised that he was injured all the time. So he did get to play one international. And so then I move on. And so from then the next guy in the book is, is Scottish because there was a huge Scottish influence as the game professionalizes. So Jack Ross is the second person. Uh, and, and so I, I keep it moving through. So the choices of the people involve me knocking the story on a little bit, as well as the sort of the first person to do this, the most important person to do that. And so I, I keep the story moving on all the way through. Uh, and then so the next England player is Vivian Woodward, who is a great amateur uh, because there was this amateur professional split. So initially the, the England authorities wanted the, the national team to be an amateur team and the first in the first time that uh, a pro played for England he wore a different colour shirt to the rest of the players and they had they tried to keep this thing that he had in cricket of the gentlemen and the players where there was a different uh, status afforded to the the amateur so the gentlemen the posh people basically <laughs> against the the commoners who, who wanted to get paid for it yeah uh, and and so then that was the the decline and then unfortunately there is a bit of a gap in in the England team because we we it still annoys me to this day, but so honestly the the isolationism of those early days. So we England could have won that first World Cup, maybe we'll never know because we didn't play in it. Yeah, there were two early FIFA splits, but essentially the, our second FIFA split happened just before the World Cup started, and so Dixie Dean, who is the next. England international, uh, who's who's featured in the book, uh, male England international, because uh, there was a bit about Lily Parr, yes, the early women's game, and they played an international. It's in inverted commas because it was probably you know there's no independent verification that the French team were all French, and that so you know so it's not an official international still. And so you, you then get on to, to Dixie Dean, and we were you know we were or the English authorities were utterly convinced that we were the best at football and were determined not to prove it to anybody because we never played. We just simply didn't play Uruguay. And we didn't, you know, we played a game against Austria and drew in that era. We might have won. We might have been the best in the world, but we didn't know. And so Dixie Dean's career, his international career, was largely spent playing against Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and then these sort of summer tour internationals. He he still banged in loads of goals. We, we, We were still among the powers but uh, there was this great sense of english isolationism as the game is growing up and the you know the uruguayans are, are playing a different brand of football and the argentinians are playing a different brand of football and england is, is stays ignorant about it until we get to stanley matthews who started in isolation and then of course post war i'm sure i'm sure you you'll know the story i, I did i tell the briefly the story of the 1950 uh, humiliation because Sandy Matthews, again, if I'm honest, I probably got like too many English players uh, right. in this. But I'm an English fan, and I, you mm. know, I, I want, I, I, yeah, I expect England uh, people um, to buy it. So what? What? Because what I try and do, try and tell all the story. So I'm off around the world. Uh, there's a, an early Argentine footballer who's in there, 
uh, and then later on it spreads wide. But I, I keep trying to wend it back into England, keep trying to knit it back in yes. so the narrative goes. So, you know, Stanley Matthews, who's a brilliant player, uh, there's a biography about him, an autobiography, but also watch images of him. It's on uh, YouTube. Of course. Amazing. He's a, he, he was, and he was a massive tryhard, Stanley Matthews. You know, he, he trained harder than anybody else. He, he worked at it harder than everybody else. He, he did it longer than everybody else. But you watch him play, he swerves in and out of defenders. His acceleration off the mark was brilliant. But obviously, that his sort of international career is defined by two humiliations. He didn't play in 1950, but Tom Finney did. Tom yeah. Finney is, again, one of the 50. Uh, but then Matthews is involved in the first game against Hungary. Uh, which is the great humbling of English football. It's still then, still having lost in the 1950 World Cup and not having any evidence that we were the best in the world, still convinced that they were the best in the, that England was the best in the world until Hungary came in 1953. And you watch that game. The weird thing about that game is not watching Hungary, it's watching England. You watch Hungary, they look like a modern football team. They're, yeah. you know, they're passing the ball, they're moving, they're playing one-twos and all of these things. And, and uh, uh, Pushkas, because Pushkas is, is uh, in the book as well, amazing story, French Pushkas. He does a drag back and Billy Wright goes in two-footed and lands on the floor and on the seat of his pants and, and Pushkas drags it back and runs away. So it was just the game had moved on and, and England were behind the times. And you watch, you try and watch that game, the, 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 the Wembley game, 1953, for Stanley Matthews, it's not certain he's playing for quite some time because the camera frame is, is obviously reasonably near the centre of the pitch. Because he's on the right wing, you don't see him. He's literally right. standing out on the right wing and Hungary is swarming all over the middle, <laughs> dominating the midfield, you know, which is, the, you know, they reinvented the game. They, you know, and, and England, I'm afraid, uh, didn't. So, yeah, so Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney, uh, and then on to Bobby Charlton, obviously, because it was, you know, I mean... When we finally different. caught up. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we found a way of winning in 1966, uh, that's that's my interpretation of that. Alf Ramsey was a very he was a pragmatic coach. Yeah. Um, he, funnily enough, it's it's seen as the the, the, the dawning of four four two, but they described it as a four three three in the early stages okay. of the World Cup, a loose four three three. And also, it's a bit more subtle than the four four two. I don't know how old you are, Russ, but I when I grew up playing football, we played four four two. Everyone. Uh, yeah. You know, so school team played four four two. If you played for a team on a weekend, it played four four two. You went to game at the weekend, and they played four four two. And England played four four two. So by the time I was playing football in the you know the late seventies, early eighties, uh, it became this default predictable formation. But it wasn't really in nineteen sixty six because uh, Bobby Charlton played in advance of Nobby Styles, and they, they had two very hard working forwards in Hurst and Hunt. Once Jimmy Greaves was injured, yeah. And, you know, and we found a way through. The South Americans hated it um, in Pelé's section. He's obviously bitter about 1966 because he got cl- uh, clogged out of the tournament. He's right. He did. Um, it was, it was, we were entering a period of brutal football. Uh, and again, when you watch back, and, and it probably got worse in the 70s again and, then, and into the 80s, because again, you watch the old videos back and you think, how on earth did they get away with some of these tackles? Yeah. I watched England, Cameroon. The 1990, sorry, jumping forward a bit. Mm. And I'll tell you what, the tackles, because we, the tackles we were putting on there. Yeah, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was played during the summer, wasn't it? They repeated it. I think it was on the BBC. Yeah. And I remember watching that thinking, oh, how'd they get away with that? <laughs> no, it's, it's, oh, it was both teams as well. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, because we tend to think of them. Because the, the, the infamous tackles from the Cameroon players was the first game against Argentina, wasn't it? When oh, uh, Canidia, was it? Yeah. Yeah, he's running through. And it's Benjamin Massing, who looks like he's he looks like he's trying to kill him. <laughs> he just kicks him. You know, he's, he's like he'd been fouled by one and he and he's stumbling and stumbling, and then Massing comes in and you know he comes from off camera and like like, you know, like a locomotive train has hit him and, and Canidia goes flying up and his boot goes flying and everything. Um, so yeah, they were they were more brutal days, but yeah. So nineteen sixty six, it's just Bobby Charlton. I felt guilty about not putting Bobby Moore in because obviously uh, English football hero. But the task I'd given myself was telling the whole of football in yeah. fifty mini mini biographies, and and Bobby Charlton's just such an interesting. What, yeah. I mean, what a, what a career! What a I think he's England's best player ever, Bobby Charlton, um, for his achievements, for having been obviously he was at Munich. You know, he, mm. he got pulled out of the wreckage at, yes. at Munich. It haunted him for the rest of his life. Well, he's still, still alive, still does. Um, but then, you know, so he was part, not just part of England, England's greatest moment. He was, he had that amazing story for Manchester United as well, from the, you know, the, the despair of Munich to winning the European Cup. So I, I couldn't ignore uh, Bobby Charlton. And then uh, Viv Anderson was my my choice for my, so my, I, I don't remember Bobby Charlton as a player. He was, yes. I, I, I was you know, he was, it was a ubiquitous name when I was a kid, Bobby Charles. Everyone mm. used the name Bobby Charles, and he was on telly and everything. Uh, but Viv Anderson's the first. So that's my first England era. Um, so I remember Viv Anderson making his, his debut, obviously significant because he was the first black player to play for England. Yeah. Although he, he doesn't want that to be uh, his legacy. He, so he forever he sort of played it down. Uh, although, he's, funnily enough, he's, he's a bit more willing to talk about it now. I've, I've heard other interviews with him in, in which, because... The, the lack of black managers, I think, has exercised him again right. now. But so, so it was those days, again, the, so my early recollection of uh, those football days was this bizarre mix of, of days of it's the world of paradoxes, as I, as I put it in the book. So black players had unprecedented opportunities, but they were racially abused. We, we had an England team that didn't qualify for successive World Cups, but a set of uh, English clubs that were dominating in Europe. Um, there was it was the start of the long ball days. Really direct football was coming in, but the best teams were Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, who played this lovely, stylish football. Got it on the ground. Played, you know. The, the, I think it's a mistake that the. I think it's a, a bit of a myth that the English style is is hoof it. I think that was. I think that's wrong. I, th- I think we'd like. I think the DNA of English football is fast paced football, yeah. but I think it's fast paced, skillful, stylish football. I think is what people want. They don't want hoof merchants. I might be. I might be wrong. No, I and think so, we all yeah. want. We all want to watch nice football, don't we? We want it to be pleasing on the eye, and, and obviously, we all want the uh, the right result at the end of it. Yeah, but what what I don't think I because again, I go into it when I get to Chavi uh, with Spain. I don't think English people necessarily want that possession dominated football to be the way. Uh, I think it's grown up with I mean, the weather is a factor, isn't it? It's cold. Our yeah. pitches aren't. Brilliant that kids. I mean, they are in academies now. Kids are playing uh, on uh, 4G pitches, yeah. so it is it, it is a, a different style of football. But so you know, so that was you know, those were my early days uh, of Viv Anderson. So he, he was you know a bit of a hero of mine, Viv Anderson, when I was a kid. So he's he's in it, uh, and then and then Gaza was the you know I, I was torn between Gaza and Lineker. Oh, um, because glad you Lineker, have to make these decisions. Yeah, it was it was it was so difficult, but then. But obviously Lineker was gone by Euro 96. So Euro 96 had to be in. But also, I mean, there were brilliant World Cups 
all, I mean, you know, if, if you're our age and you don't remember 1966, it always ends in disappointment for England. <laughs> you know, that, I've got used to that now. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I don't get too angry or, or disappointed about it. Um, and, and so 86, obviously, uh, obviously Maradona's in because Maradona is just an incredible story from mm. just from beginning to end. I mean, there, there was, I, I watched, have you seen the Maradona film? Which, if is you it, haven't seen it. Is it called, or, is it called Goal or? I think it's just called Diego or Diego Maradona. Uh, but there's all sorts of footage in it. It's there's um there's video of him because he's with the the Camorra, which is the, the Neapolitan version of the mafia, who he's friends with when he's in Napoli. Other stuff that you'll see on YouTube of Maradona. Yeah. He gets into a fight in the Copa del Rey final against Athletic Bilbao, against the butcher of Bilbao, who'd broken his leg earlier. And they are they are literally running around kicking each other. Maradona kicks somebody in the head and knocks him out. So, you know, that's tiny bits of, of Maradona. So you had to have Maradona in it. So he, he obviously tells the story. Oh, it's uh, Asif Kapadia, Diego Maradona film. That's, that's, that's oh, what's okay. That was that brilliant film. I mean, and um, he just going back to, to Cameroon, he was in 1990. I think he was another one who was, uh, who was caught by the Cameroon defence at times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he got a proper kicking all the way. All the way through his career, and he and to be he didn't he didn't lie down and take it, did he? Maradona. It's funny. I was talking to a younger guy who's a friend of mine, whose dad brought him up hating Diego Maradona because I told him I said you just watch that film. It's oh, I'm not going to watch it if it makes me like Maradona. <laughs> so, no, you, I think even as an England supporter, you can't deny how good Maradona was. Obviously, he had his his mo or the, those two moments in that game. Yeah. Five minutes apart. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, so can, was, you can disregard one and you can appreciate the other. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was Maradona in five minutes, wasn't it? It yeah. was both, wasn't it? It was the, because he obviously cheats. But I don't know. See, again, I, I, I remember, because I was, I'd have been 14, I think. I remember not being certain that he'd handballed it uh, because the official, in, this is in defence of the, the match officials, yep. because he goes up with Shilton. Shilton, uh, much much as I like Peter Shelton, he, he was a limited goalkeeper, uh, and I, I, I need to get. It's another thing I need to get over, Russell. But you know, I'm, work, <laughs> I'm still working on it after all these years. That 1990 penalty shootout, <laughs> uh, uh, but he, he comes to punch it, but he, he, he doesn't get up off the ground, does he? No. So Shelton's virtually touching the ground. He's still on the on the still, and Maradona's hand is is just slightly above his head, and he just nudges it past Shilton. And then his teammates aren't going to celebrate. Maradona says, come on, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Um, England go crazy because England have obviously seen it. Yeah. But the, the, the TV commentary didn't mention it. It took them quite a lot of time. You know, obviously now you've got brilliant TV. You know, there's a big team of people on yeah. digital. So just and it's back and they've checked it and they've replayed it. So it took ages, I, uh, my recollection, for them to work out that it was handball. And even when England are going crazy, when Butcher and Reed and everyone is going to the referee, and they're all going, they're pointing at their hands and yes. stuff, the referee, oh, leave me alone. But I was also told, I, I do mention this in the book, years ago when I was working at the BBC, someone told me that they re-edited the BBC radio commentary. Oh, um, did they? Put a mention in of the handball, because he, again, the radio commentator hadn't mentioned it um, mm. at the time. It was, a, it was another commentator from the, from the era who told me that. So well, there you go. It's a reasonably good source inside uh, information course, there yeah and then of course five minutes later uh he scores that brilliant goal and as uh, you know so I, I then contrast the commentary because the, the south there's a uruguayan commentator who's, who's who's crying calling him a cosmic kite and all of that and uh, and then but barry davis uh stiff up a lip by by contrast is that you you have to say that's magnificent yeah uh, and and of course it was of course it was it was just bitter for us but I, I say I'm, I'm a big, I'm a Venables fan. I think Venables has been the best England manager that I recollect because I, I thought we played really good football in Euro '96. 
Um, it took us a while to get going. The Switzerland yeah. game was was hard work. Start of the Scotland game was hard work. But then, you know, Gaza. Yeah, I, I love Gaza. And again, I, I've got over the. It's, it's Gaza is almost like the embodiment of England to me, in that. At the time, I was I was yearning, almost angry that he that he wasn't making the best of his talent because I think he was the most talented midfielder in the world at that time, but he wasn't the best midfielder in the world be- consistently because he, uh, as Dino Zoff said, he had ice cream for breakfast and beer for lunch, <laughs> which obviously limited him. And, yes. and then his tackling is not just his lifestyle; his tackling, the tackle on Gary Charles. We talk mm. about Benjamin Massings, uh, so the, the the ninety-one FA Cup final. He's it, trying to kick him out of the stadium. He was just um, so uh, hyped up for it, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. Beyond, I mean, beyond anything normal. He said he had an injection beforehand to calm him down. I mean, one, I don't know what that means, and secondly, <laughs> it didn't work. Whatever it was, no, no, that's and true. so that sort of limited him. And then he, yeah, yeah, the weight problems. And then, of course, it was a sad end for him with with Hoddle in, not not going to uh, the nineteen ninety eight World Cup. But you can sort of see it. You know, I'm sure you remember. You know, there's been so much in the build-up, hadn't there? So much talk of the nights out and yeah. the, the lifestyle and all of that. And he and he wasn't the player that he could have been. He wasn't the player that he that he had been by then. But he tells a good old story, Gaza. You, you know, so uh, as then, uh, as Middlesbrough pitch side person, yeah, did yeah. you come into contact with him? Uh, no, I I didn't. So I wasn't doing it. But I was, I did go and see them in that period because he was actually quite disappointing in Middlesbrough. Um, and it, and it was quite upsetting for him because I remember the the fanzine uh, flying me to the moon had a vote and he was voted the most disappointing player at Middlesbrough that season. I think it and it was quite wounding for him because right. because it was the fans' voice and so it's I think it's quite easy to to dismiss journalists uh, and say oh well you got to ignore the press. But I think when there's been a, a vote and quite quite a lot of people vote at least hundreds maybe thousands of people vote in these things. Yeah. So it was it was disappointing. But uh, yeah, I was I was there doing stuff, but. They protected him. Actually, thinking right. about it, I didn't. I, I can't remember interviewing Gaza, I, even though I was. I think by then I was doing the website. I think if I remember rightly. So uh, they always would put someone else up, and they he would do stuff. He was still doing. He was still like, letting down people's tires and stuff, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. I mean, some, there's some gross stories. In, in, there's a gross story about yeah. Gennaro Gattuso in there in Gaza. But the club were very, very protective of him, didn't want that kind of stuff getting out. So they were just, no, no, don't say anything about Gaza, don't say anything about Gaza. And so we, we sort of looked after him. But, you know, it, it, it's a sad story, isn't it? Because mm. he's still there. I mean, literally one day I was writing about Gaza and I just, I just, I just, I, I couldn't remember something. I, I Googled it and it Gaza. And there he was breaking some, you know, allegedly breaking some lockdown rules or something in, in, a lof, in an off license or something. And, oh, Gaza, he's, he's just <laughs> still going, still at it. And, you know, it's sort of, Hope, wish him well, you know. You hope he sorts him. You know, he finds some peace. I think is the, is probably the, the fair yeah. way of putting. It. But Lin- I, I finished with a quote from Lineker saying that none of us ever really understood it. And if you try and take, if you don't understand Gaza, you won't get the best out of him. So you've got to accept that that's that's Gaza. That's it. That's his story. There's a sadness to it. Or or you can also concentrate on the joy that he brought. And and, and you know he brought. He was a brilliant footballer in his early days. I thought at his best at Newcastle, or maybe that season. Post World Cup before the injury at Spurs, that you know that that was that's the Gaza that uh, you know hopefully we will we'll all end up remembering. Yeah, and it's interesting actually just talking about Gaza and kind of bringing it bang up to date that the likes of Jack Grealish are being compared to him. Obviously, not off the pitch, but on on the pitch. <laughs> and it, I mean, it'd be great to have someone like Gaza in the current setup. But I mean, could Jack Grealish go on and be the next Gaza? 
Um, I, I, I'm all for Grealish being in the team. He's not the next Gazza, is he? He's not, um, you know, I mean, bear in mind, in terms of raw ability, Gazza, I think, like as I said, was the, the most talented midfielder uh, of his generation. Jack Grealish isn't, but I do want him in there. Uh, I, I think it's, it's the real, it's the position that we've always struggled to, to fill. Our midfielders were, they were hard-working midfielders, good, honest, hard-working bloke midfielders. And we've had Brian Robson-style midfielders, dynamic, brave as anything, put his head in everywhere. Um, we've had, we've been able to produce pacey wingers. I think in the in the England game at the moment, in the in the developmental structure, there's an obsession with pace. If you look at the the players that England are producing, very much of a of a sort, fast yeah. everywhere. That's that's the main thing. And I I think I think English people want a clever player, but I think something about the system, certainly in my lifetime has almost driven that creativity out. So I think what happened was, before Gaza, and in Gaza's era, to a lesser extent now, only Mavericks really came through because the system drove people into being straightforward up and down players. Uh, play the way you face. Don't take any chances. Get it get it out of there. Don't lose possession. Don't play a ball across your own penalty area. Any All of these sort of creative, dangerous things yeah. were all, have always been coached out of players. And so you've only got people like Gaza doing it and and so Jack Grealish is is a lesser case of that he is a bit of a maverick he's at his moments off the pitch hasn't he and yep. you know, hopefully hopefully he doesn't you know you know he recognizes the importance of not doing that but yeah yeah I, I I want Grealish in there because I don't want England yeah it's not a disaster I don't really want Rice and Henderson to be England's midfield um because they're both Unadventurous? Is that is that a fair way? Of I, I think that's it? a fair way. Yes, a yeah, bit defensive minded. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So give me a player, give me a midfielder who will take a chance, who will try to dribble the ball past somebody, who yeah. will try to open something up. So you know, I, I'm I'm for Grealish. I, I know people query is is out, but and Gareth Southgate doesn't seem convinced, does he? There's something, something there's something there. in Grealish that Southgate doesn't get, isn't there? Mm. So how much we'll see him, I don't know. We'll see. But there are a couple of other players there that in the book, Beckham, and, and as you say, finish up with Raheem Sterling as well. Yeah, so Beckham had to be uh, in there. Again, there were, there were other options. I mean, there were, Beckham wasn't the best player. He, you know, if you're doing a team from these 50 players, Beckham wouldn't be anywhere near it. But he, he made the absolute most of himself. And what the other thing that Beckham, as well as allowing me to tell the the, the England story and the clubs he played for, he played for, you know, he played for Manchester United, he played for Real Madrid, Milan, tells the the story of the MLS growth as well. So, but the other thing, the, he was a pop cultural phenomena that we hadn't really had since George Best. Uh, he, he was very much a, a you know a, a cross media superstar, David Beckham, and, and a huge, huge name uh, with intense. You know, intense media focus on him, and I admire Beckham. I like Beckham because what I, you know, he, he was a working class kid who came through some talent, a, a shed load of hard work. He, I used to interview him a lot back in those days. He was polite. He, he not brilliantly articulate. He didn't really have many stories to tell or anything. But you know what? He, he, he fronted up. He answered your questions. He, he was nice, polite, well brought up, hardworking man. And there aren't many of them. You know, most there are more crazy stories in this book than there are people like David Beckham. And right. so, yeah. So, but obviously, his you know his England career was one of was one of frustration and this slight sense of underachievement. I think wasn't it through the you know the Sven yeah. years where we had a very good midfield. You know, I, I sort of share Harry Redknapp's frustration. I remember the day I, I interviewed Harry Redknapp, who's at West Ham, the day after Sven's 
uh, debut. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm glad we got that foreigner in to, to come and show us English dummies. Uh, what, what formation did he play? 4-4-2, was it? And he had. He literally, right. you, Sven yeah. had, you know, Sven had come, played a 4-4-2 and squeezed players into positions. <laughs> and you think, well, what, what, is that what we hired? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so, you know, you know, we, we stumbled through, we got, you know, the, the penalty shootouts. That's, that was the story of that period, wasn't it? The, you yes. know, the penalty shootouts. And we just found different ways of, of blowing ourselves, shooting ourselves in the foot, or, you know, or, you know, Rooney being sent off. Uh, Beckham's missed penalty. We, it's that, that, that's the tale of that, of that period. And then I come up to date with Raheem Sterling. Uh, and it's a couple of very frustrating tournaments. Weren't they? 2014 was a grim. It was, you know, it was yeah. hard work, wasn't it? I remember, because it was in, in the middle of the night. I didn't go to that one, but it was in the middle of the night, sitting there watching that game against Italy, trying to keep my eyes open. <laughs> you know, and then, and then we were out. Weren't we lost against yeah. Uruguay, didn't we? Suarez yeah. killed us. And then that Costa Rica. City, the Costa Rica game with no point. We were out by then, weren't we? Yes. So, you know, so I'm playing, playing Costa Rica, trying to scrabble for a draw against Costa Rica for no, for no purpose. Uh, but Raheem Sterling was, in, was involved in that, wasn't he? And then, of course, then he became the focal point of the criticism of 2016, harshly, because it was a dreadful, it was a dreadful tournament, 2016, yeah. Euro 2016. And I don't think Roy Hodgson helped. I don't, I don't think that hangdog dour thing. I think, I think an England coach needs to be like Venable. I mean, I think Southgate is good for this. He's, he's, he's a nice bloke and I, I'm sure Gareth Southgate creates a nice atmosphere. Bearing in mind, you, haven't got, you, you don't need a tactical genius because you haven't got time. So you go, you cheer everyone up, you put them in a simple formation, you go and hope for the best. I think that's, realistically, that's what international football is. It's not the same tactical minefield that club football can you be. You just don't have the time, do you? No, yeah, it's just, you just got to be realistic. Uh, and and then ride a little bit of luck because the tournaments are short. You know, so if Greece can win it, if Portugal can win the Euros, then it, obviously England can win the Euros, but you've got to have some luck and you've got to give yourself the best chance with, by getting your tactics right and all of that. I don't think Roy Hudson did any of that. Um, I think we were too negative, particularly against Russia, if you remember... You know, they were they were ancient Russia, weren't they? Yeah. And, and if I remember rightly, we didn't bring Vardy on, uh, who was on fire uh, at that time. And Raheem Sterling took the brunt of it. But I'm quite sympathetic in my write-up to the England players, the modern England players, because they there were so many people. There was a BBC story on their website. I looked it up and it was, so, you know, Euro 26, I want to read the match reports again. England disgrace or something like that. I'm thinking, is disgrace the word? You know, they lost. They played yeah. poorly. They lost. So, you know, have they, you know, did they shame anybody? Did they do anything horrible to anybody? No, they were young guys who I think wanted to play, didn't have the best direction from Roy Hodgson. And I think what I see when I see England play a lot of the time is the expression is the heavy shirt. And I think it's a good expression. They, they underperform compared to their club teams out of a sense of desperation because the whole nation is, is just urging England to do well. The media joins in, the fans, we're guilty of it, you know, on, on both of those things. And, and so, and I, I think just, you, you watch England play at times in big games and it's just like they're running through treacle. At other times, we, we turn it on and put in brilliant performances and, and it lifts your heart again, doesn't it? But there are, you know, just, you know, through my England watching career, it just comes back every now and again, you know, there's just going to be one of those games where we just, you know, everyone freezes. And the Iceland yeah. game was probably the low point in, in, in my watching. Yes. Uh, was, wasn't a pleasant experience, that one. No. no Not at all. No. 
I mean, this is a, a book that, I mean, it, the, the whole roll call of players there, uh, is, as I say, it's not just England players, but there's a couple there that I'd be really interested to read about. And I know I've read um, a couple of the biographies or autobiographies, but there's um, a couple, Garincha of Brazil has got an amazing story, hasn't he? And, and I'd be quite interested to hear about what you, what you read about Eric Cantona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as I say, you know, you know, you know, characters um, yeah. tend to get. I mean, Garincha was was amazing. Um, so, if you're, I'm not here to recommend other people's books, but there is a really good biography of Garincha by Roy yeah. Castro. Um, which, so if you want that book, so read mine, uh, everybody listening. Uh, read, read because uh, it's about I don't know seven pages or something. That's what they all are. I think the whole uh, the whole thing, eighty seven thousand words. So every story, you know, the average is seventeen hundred words, eighteen hundred words per chapter, uh, which gives me doesn't give me doesn't give me enough time to tell all the scandal of Garincha. It, it was another. He's like Gaza squared Garincha. In uh, he was he was the the, the amazingly talented. He knocked England out of the World Cup in nineteen sixty two. Uh, Pele said he had an angel watching over him in that tournament. He was he was disabled Garincha. Yeah. He, he had a. His, his legs, his knees bent in the wrong direction. He, he, his one leg was shorter than the other. But what that did give him was this incredible low centre of gravity where he could change direction. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like a, like a, motorci- like a motorcycle racer going around a corner. You'd get so low and change direction. Um, but he was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic when he was a kid. He yeah. grew up, his dad was an alcoholic and he grew up drinking this sweet Brazilian um, liquor thing. And, it, and it, to tragic consequences... So you read it, and part of you, you know, we've got this odd attitude to to heavy drinking sports stars, haven't we? And that was we're sort of fascinated and amused by them, but also sort of appalled and and sad about it. And that's that's Garincha all over. Yeah, he ran over his own father when he was drunk, and he killed his mother in law in a traffic accident when he was drunk, and in separate incidents. And you think, what this this you know this man just had the most intense crazy life and he died poverty stricken at 49 i mean you know it's absolutely yeah i mean garincha absolutely absolutely fascinating and Cantona, there's a lot to squeeze in with, with <laughs> I bet. So, yeah he had a, he had a massive effect on english football in a way once he was in england for all of the for all he jumped into the crowd and kung fu kicked a fan it was actually in ways less eventful his time in england than it had been than he had been in france beforehand because he came here Ferguson dealt with him brilliantly. It was genius from Ferguson. He he recognised a special talent and how to deal with it, and and so he he allowed Cantona is is in it because of the effect he has on the English game, because he brings a new sort of sophistication. It was still blood and guts in 1992. He still had hardly any foreigners. I think it was 11, if I remember rightly, foreigners line up in the Premier League in the first day of the Premier League in 1992. Uh, obviously, a lot of Scots and Irish who yes to a large extent, gone out of uh, the, the English top division. And so just those 11 guys, not remarkable players. But so Cantona comes, well, Cantona was already at Leeds, wasn't he? That They brought him. So he, he fell out, he, I think he had six clubs in France and he fell out with them all in different, in different ways, culminating in him being called up before the French disciplinary authority. And he walked to each member of the committee and he, and he walked up to them and looked in their face and said, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. <laughs> so that, that was, okay. So that was, a, that was a way to go. So that, that was the end of him. And then Leeds got him. Leeds sold him cheap, which was, you know, a, a yeah. bizarre, bizarre move. I, I, I would like to think they regretted it. 
Um, and so, yeah, but so, yeah, so the exploits in in France. There was a lot to cram into that chapter, Eric Cantona, because he did a lot of a lot of crazy things in in France before he before he got to England and and reshaped football with an intelligent striker coming back and playing in midfield, which now we're used to. Obviously, now the idea of having two guys stuck up the top of the pitch is seen as a bit antiquated. Actually, it's a case for it sometimes, but hardly anyone does it in the Premier League these days. Uh, and a lot of that is, you know, Cantona led the way. So in that respect, he was, he, he was you know, he fits the bill. He was influential. Wow. It's a, uh, it looks a, a very interesting book. Um, it's called The 50, Football's Most Influential Players. Um, it should be out by the time we uh, re-release this. Um, I mean, where, where can people buy it from? Your usual outlet. So it's published by Pitch Publishing. Uh, so you can have a look on their website, but it's on, you know, if you, if you, if you want to share my money with Jeff Bezos, Feel free to buy it on Amazon, <laughs> Smith's, Waterstones, all of those, all of those, uh, certainly all those websites, whether it's in your local store or not, I don't know. If it's not in your local store, order it in, do me a favour. But yeah, it's all, all the usual. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just search the, the 50 by John Driss. What? Yeah, Pitch Publishing. Great stuff. And uh, I'm sure you'll be, you'll be pushing out on Twitter. You're on Twitter, aren't you, if anyone wants to follow you? I am, yeah, at Driscoll FC. That's me. So anyone who does follow me, hopefully you'll be sick of the sight of, sick of the sound of me banging on about this book. No. Yeah, please go and buy it. I hope you enjoy it. That looks a good read and it'll be a, uh, an ideal stocking filler, as they say, good, I guess. Good point. John, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Oh, great talking to you, Russell. Thank you. As always, thank you very much for listening. Always very much appreciated. Thank you to John there for his time. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Driscoll11. Uh, and the book well, it should be available, as he said, in all good bookstores. You can follow the podcast on various social media channels. Just search Three Lions Podcast. And we'll be back very soon digesting the international window where England have faced Ireland, Belgium and Iceland. Hopefully, it's a positive one, and I hope you can join me for it. Until then, stay safe, look after yourselves and each other. Please continue to follow the guidelines as much as a pain in the bum they are. Uh, But hopefully, this time, it'll all be worthwhile. And the next time England are in action, we'll all be in a position where we can attend. Cheers. Cheers.